I'd like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the 11th chapter of the letter or the sermon or the book to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking specifically at verse 3 this morning, but I am going to read verses 1 and 2 so that we have the context here. So let me read for you Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 3. And as I do so, I remind you, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God, the one who by his word created everything out of nothing. So let us tremble before his word. Let us have contrite hearts before his word. And let us expectantly receive this word, knowing that the Holy Spirit will use it to great effect in our lives. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance or substance, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways, and your thoughts than our thoughts. And so we acknowledge together that we are incapable of rightly understanding your word unless your spirit illumines our hearts and our minds. Therefore, we pray this morning that you would use your word that goes out from your mouth so that it would not return empty, but that it may accomplish that which you purpose and may succeed in the thing for which you sent it amongst your people. Do this in our midst now, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of our greatest struggles as Christians, really a perennial struggle in any Christian's life, is to live in obedience to Paul's command in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he commands us to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's a struggle for us because ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve took of the fruit and ate, our temptation, our struggle, is our desire to want to invert that command. (laughs) And instead of walking by faith and not by sight, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to walk by sight, what we can see, what we can observe, what we experience, rather than by faith. God's promises, what he's revealed in his word. That's our struggle. And so when we hear promises like the Lord that has started this work in us will complete it Until the day of Christ Jesus, we receive that word from his revelation, that promise, and yet then we look at ourselves. We look at our own weaknesses. We look at our still sinful heart. We look at our besetting sins. And we go, Lord, how, based on what I can see in my life, is this promise going to be fulfilled? And so then what are we doing in that moment? We're being tempted to walk by sight our experiences, what we can see, our observances, instead of by faith, what God has promised in his word. And the reason I bring that up is because this is the very struggle that the original recipients of this sermon, of this letter, were experiencing as well. 
you remember their situation. This letter was written to Hebrew Christians who have come out of the old covenant types and shadows when they heard the good news proclaimed to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. All of the old covenant promises find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they believed that. And they were baptized. And they were catechized. Not necessarily in that order. And they were involved in the life of the church. They participated in the Lord's Supper. And they endured suffering at the hands of Romans who did not recognize Christianity as a legitimate religion. And suffering at the hands of unbelieving Jews They endured that with rejoicing. But then as time went on and that persecution endured, some of them turned away. Some of them were tempted to return to the old covenant types and shadows. Why? So that the persecution and suffering might cease. And you see, by returning to the old covenant types and shadows, they've returned to what now is damnable because God has abrogated those types and shadows. That's no longer what he uses. The reality has now come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to turn back to those types and shadows is to walk away from the living God. And so the burden of the author of the book of Hebrews is to encourage them to persevere in the faith. He primarily does that by giving them reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. We see that again and again. That Jesus is the reality that the old covenant types and shadows pointed to. And so his burden is to encourage them to persevere. And the way he does that specifically in this verse, in verse 3 this morning, is by reminding them of three truths that they need to know to encourage them to persevere in the faith. And I didn't come up with some snazzy outline. The three truths are just literally word for word verse 3. So what are those three truths? Probably the best way to do it, right? Some of you laughed. You should do that every time. The three truths are, first of all, that we need to understand so that we can persevere by faith, is that it is by faith that we understand. You see that at the very beginning. It is by faith that we understand, not by sight, not by human reason. There are certain truths in Christianity that only by faith we understand. And so we'll talk about the pastoral import of that as we look at that first truth. The second truth that he provides them with that's meant to encourage them to persevere in the faith is that the universe was created by the word of God. That all things that we can see and not see, all things that exist, came into existence by God's powerful word being spoken. They need to understand that to encourage them to persevere in the faith. And we'll look at the pastoral import of why that truth. And then thirdly, they need to be reminded of the truth that what is seen was not made by things that are visible. They need to be reminded of that truth as they walk through this temptation to turn away from the realities that the Old Covenant points to. They need to be reminded of that so that they might persevere. And we'll look at the pastoral import of that as well. But here's my hope and prayer. We're in a similar situation as this original audience, brothers and sisters. We're tempted in the face of persecution and suffering to turn away. And so we need to endure. And so I pray that we would be encouraged as we hear these truths because the Holy Spirit has preserved these truths in his holy word to that end. So may the Spirit use them to that end in our congregation and in our lives this morning. May it be so. 
So let's look at the first truth that they need to be reminded of to endure in the faith. That is the truth that by faith we understand. Now before we get into this doctrine of understanding by faith, I want to highlight his use here of the word we. Because it's striking in contrast to what he has to say in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. For by it, by what? By faith, that he defined earlier in verse 1. For by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, who's he talking about? Who are these people of old that received their commendation, their reward, because God in his faithfulness, sustains their faith to endure to the end so that they receive that reward. Well, it's the litany of characters that he's going to walk us through from the old covenant, starting with Abel, moving on to Enoch, then Noah. He's highlighting the fact here that it is by faith that these old covenant saints were saved. And what was the promise that they were having faith in? It's the promise of the Messiah. Of the Christ. And so then he transitions in verse 3 and says, By faith we, by faith they under the old covenant, but by faith we in the new covenant also by faith receive the promise of the Messiah, receive the Messiah himself. And so what's he doing here? He's highlighting the continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, no doubt there are discontinuities, aren't there? One of the big discontinuities that's highlighted in the book of Hebrews between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old Covenant is the promise of the Messiah, and the New Covenant is the fulfillment of that promise with the Messiah actually coming. So there are differences, but here's the similarity he's trying to highlight. It has always been by faith. Faith has always been the instrumental cause This gracious gift that God gives to his people by which they receive Christ himself. That was the case under the old covenant, and that's also true in the new covenant as well. It's always been by faith, and the substance of both covenants is the person and work of the Lord Jesus, who is the Messiah. And so I think it's very important that we we see that continuity that he's trying to highlight here. And then he gets to this doctrine of understanding by faith. He says, by faith we understand. And what he's talking about here is the reality, the important reality that we understand as Christians, that there are truths, there are realities, that we cannot know about and believe and understand unless God reveals them to us in his word. Right? There's a lot that we can know about God. See Romans 1, see Psalm 19. There's a lot that we can know about God just by looking at his creation and with our human reason. And if you're an unbeliever, it's enough to condemn you, but it's not enough to have saving knowledge about what God has done to save you. It's enough for you to not be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. Everybody knows that God exists. It's clear from what has been made, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And there's a great deal of things that we can know, by the way, from the creation and from our human reason. We can know that God created all things. We can know that he's good, that he's wise, 
that he's powerful. I, I can learn these things as I contemplate a flower or a tree or a mountain or the ocean or another image bearer of God, a human being. But then there are other truths that we can't know about God unless he reveals them to us. And so what are some of these truths? Well, how about the fact that God is triune, that he's one God in three subsistences, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can't learn that with my human reason and from the light of nature. I'm not going to learn that by looking at a flower, even if it only has three petals, but it's one flower. All right, some of you got that. All right, you can't learn that just from the light of nature. That has to be revealed to you. How about the hypostatic union? The reality that Jesus is truly God, he has a divine nature, he's truly man, he has a human nature, in one person. I'm not going to come to understand that or know that that's true or even believe that. Simply from the light of nature, what has been created, and my own human reason. We can say the same thing about God's sovereignty and my responsibility. I don't come to understand these things from nature. They are revealed to us in the word. And so the incredible thing, though, is this. What's he saying? By faith, we receive those things that God reveals, and we actually understand them. We contemplate them. We receive the truth. And it's not just mere intellectual assent. We actually understand it. It makes sense to us. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me clarify what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that by us understanding it and it making sense to us that it removes all the mystery. Don't come up to me afterwards and say, so you say you understand the Trinity. Can you explain all the ins and outs of it for me? No, I can't. I can tell you what the scriptures have revealed and what the church has understood and believed, and those are the parameters in which we think about our triune God. But if you start trying to go outside of those bounds, what happens? You start going into heresies. The same is true of the two natures of Christ in one person. So I'm not saying that it removes all the mystery, but it makes sense to us that this is how it is to be. We understand these truths, and so then we live in light of them. And one of the big realities that we'll talk about more and more is that because by faith we understand these things that are revealed in the scriptures, we then appropriate the creation. We use the creation the right way. And when we don't, we understand that we're sinning and rebelling against God, and we we repent of that. But we rightly understand so many things that unbelievers cannot because of what God has revealed And we have received by faith. We understand them and we live in light of them. Now here's the question. Okay, that's an amazingly beautiful doctrine. Why is he highlighting this for these Hebrew Christians? What's the pastoral impulse here? Why is he reminding them of this truth? He's reminding them of this truth because it's a reminder that their reason, their senses, their experience is not the ultimate decider, is not the ultimate arbiter of reality. God's word is, which they have received by faith. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that what faith receives is irrational or illogical, but if you subject what God reveals to human reason and it has to all make sense to you, then you're going to reject the doctrine of the Trinity. You're going to reject the doctrine. Not that it's contradictory, but it's mysterious. And if you have to be able to explain all the mystery away, you're not going to receive it. But do you see the importance of 
understanding the role of reason. Reason is a wonderful faculty of the soul. The mind is a wonderful gift from the Lord, and I'm not encouraging us to neglect it. We are to foster it and to nurture it as much as we can. But if we misunderstand its role in our lives, that it is to be the handmaiden or the servant to the word of God, then we're going to really mess things up in our Christian life. We need to understand appropriately the place of reason and the place of God's divine revelation in our Christian lives because we are receiving these things by faith and they inform our reason. They sanctify our reason as we meditate and reflect on them and we truly understand them. And then we live in light of those incredible realities. So you can see why he's emphasizing this pastorally, can't you? Don't emphasize and make the ultimate reality based upon your observation and your senses and what your experience is because it seems to contradict what God has promised. Instead, receive by faith and understand that God's promises are true and they will be fulfilled even though you can't see it right now. So that's what he means when he says, by faith we understand. This is what he means. Now, That faith has content, doesn't it? It's not just nebulous faith in whatever I want it to be. You know, just have faith. That's all that matters. That's what our culture tells us, right? In anything. Have faith in anything. No, no, no. It has specific content. And so he then points them to two truths that he knows will encourage them to persevere in the faith. That by faith they understand. And that first truth, which is the second point, is that the universe, they understand by faith, that the universe was created by the word of God. Now, what's he doing here? What is he doing for his readers? He's taking them all the way back to the very beginning of time. A story that these Hebrew Christians would have been very familiar with. He takes them all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. Nothing else, God. And then God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. Now here's the question. Why is he taking them all the way back to creation? What's the place of the emphasis on creation when you're looking at verses 1 and 2 talking about faith and talking about the old covenant saints? Then he goes to creation and then he jumps into Abel and Enoch and Noah. Why does he take them back to creation? Well, I think there's two reasons. First of all, I think he takes them all the way back to creation because again, he's giving them a history of faith. So If you're going to give them a history of faith, why not take them all the way back to where it all begins, the creation? And so I think that's one thing. He's giving them a history, so you're going to start at the very beginning. But second of all, and perhaps more importantly, to get at the pastoral concern here, is he's taking them back to the beginning where God creates everything by his word. Because if God can create everything by his word, God speaks, God wills, and things exist. If he can do that in the creation... And we now have his word, his promises today. We are to understand that those words have the same power. The same words that created everything out of nothing are the same words of God that are now spoken promises to us. And so he's saying, listen, God's word was efficacious then. His word is all-powerful because he's all-powerful. And his promises to you are all-powerful. And they will be fulfilled. And so he's taking us back to the beginning for those reasons. And what does he say? He says the universe was created by the word of God. 
That word universe in the Greek, the Greek scholars tell me, is literally the ages. Now, I think that the translation of the ESV, if that's the one you have, is appropriate, the universe. The point is with the ages that everything that existed since time began, God created. Now, we also need to focus on that word created because, again, literally, the Greek scholars tell us that that word created is literally translated formed or ordered. Now, I think it's fine that ESV used created because obviously you have to have something created first if nothing exists in order for it to be ordered or formed. But the emphasis here is on that, that God not only creates everything perfectly, he perfectly then orders it and forms it. And we'll look at what the pastoral import of that is in just a little bit. But also by using this phrase, the universe was created or formed by the word of God, he's revealing some incredible truths to us. By saying by the word of God, he's wanting to point us to other passages in scripture that reveal incredible truths about creation that we can't know just by looking at the creation, that we can't find out um, just by our own mental faculties. They have to be revealed to us. So what are some of these truths that he's pointing to by saying the word of God. Well, first of all, he's showing us that the word of God is the son of God. Who is the word of God? It's the son of God. We know that from scripture passages, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Like John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word. John in chapter 1 is talking about the son of God who took on flesh. And so who is the Word? It's the Son of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So who is the Word of God? It's not just the what is the Word of God. What is the Word of God? It's the will of God. It's simply willing it, and then things exist. But it's also the question of who is the Word of God? It's the Son of God. The Son of God is the word of God. And that really points us in the direction of the reality that creation, and this is another important truth that's revealed to us, that we can understand by faith and receive by faith, is that creation is an act of the triune God. Each person of the Trinity is actually involved in the act of creation. We already know that the Father is involved. We know now from John 1 that the Son is involved. And if we look elsewhere at places like Genesis chapter 1, what do we see? We see the Spirit hovering over the waters, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. And so what are we being shown clearly from Scripture? You can't know this from the light of nature that a triune God created all things. That has to be revealed to you, and it is revealed to us. And we understand this, and it affects the way that we interact with God's creation. We understand how he created all things. He created it by his word, his son. And we understand who created it, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the last truth that really I want us to focus on here is that we understand the great end or purpose or telos or goal of creation. We understand why God created all things. And we're shown this in places like Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Let me read that for you. Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. He's talking about the Son here again. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, the Son, and for him. And for him. What's the great end of all creation? Why has God created all things? For his glory. The glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we understand the why of creation. Brothers and sisters, we should be amazed at this. These incredible realities that are true, that should amaze us there. But then also that we would have no understanding, clear understanding of that reality unless God had revealed it to us. And not just revealed it to us, but then gave us the gift of faith so that we would actually receive it and understand it. So that it shapes our lives, it shapes us, and we understand that all things exist to bring glory to God. You exist, I exist for the glory of God. The trees that exist, exist for the glory of God. Water exists for the glory of God. Just, you're surrounded by signs pointing you, all of creation is making known to you, that God has made us. And then the scriptures reveal to us who created it, the triune God, why he created it for his glory, and the fact that it's an act of our triune God. We understand these realities by faith. But again, I want to go back to the fact that he starts at the creation. He starts at the beginning of all things, and he has very good pastoral reason for doing so. He starts there. He's taking them back to the very beginning of time to show them that just as God's first works of creation were perfect and perfectly ordered, such shall be the case for all of God's works. As was his first work of creation, perfect and perfectly ordered, so are all of his other works. And guess what, brothers and sisters? You and I are called his workmanship. We are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. How has he done this? He has done this by his Son, by the Word of God. The Son of God takes on flesh, lives the perfect life that we failed to. We owed perfect obedience to God, and we are incapable of doing that ever since the fall. And so Jesus comes and fulfills all righteousness, and that righteousness is then counted as our own. And he goes to the cross and pays the penalty for our sins. We could never pay that penalty. It's an infinite debt, and yet he pays it. And then he raises from the dead and sends the Holy Spirit to unite us to Christ so that we now receive him and all of his benefits. But do you see, here's this perfect recreation. It's perfect like the initial creation was. It's by the word of God, by the Son. It's an act of the triune God, and it's for his glory. And here's the thing. Remember how I told you that that word there, create, is more literally translated ordered or formed? He has ordered and formed all of your life, all of history, every circumstance, your personal makeup, everything is perfectly ordered so that all of his promises will be fulfilled towards you, so that you will be progressively sanctified, so that you will walk in communion with him, so that you will one day be glorified and behold the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in an unmediated way, beholding the beatific vision. And Jesus will come back. 
All of these things will happen because he's perfectly ordered them. So do you see why he's drawing their attention to these incredible realities as he's talking about faith and as he's trying to encourage them to persevere? These are the things that we understand by faith, brothers and sisters. We understand that this is not just speaking about the first creation, but how God now works in our lives and in history to the praise of his glorious grace. But that's not the only truth he wants them to understand by faith. The second truth, but the third point that he wants to remind them of so that they'll persevere in the faith is that what is seen was not made by things that are visible. He wants to remind them of this truth because it's going to encourage them to endure and persevere in the faith. Now, before we even jump into this, I want to clarify something because we understand that God didn't just create things that we can see, did he? God also creates things that we can't see. Angels. Can you see angels? Unless they take a bodily form, you can't see angels. That's just one example of something that God creates that to our human eyes is invisible. So then here's the question. If God created all things visible and invisible, which Colossians 1 verse 16 tells us, then why is the author's emphasis here on the seen things, on the creation that we can perceive? Why is that the emphasis? Why is he focusing on that? Why the focus on the visible creation? He's focusing on that because what we see often contradicts what we sense, what we experience, what we observe in our lives often seems to contradict God's promises, doesn't it? Our experience seems to contradict the unseen future fulfillments of God's promises. And so again, what's he doing here? He's reminding them that we don't ultimately trust in the things around us that we can see because we can be bamboozled by our perception. We can be deceived by our perception. We're not rightly interpreting things. What do we ultimately trust in then? We ultimately trust in the God who promises us things that we can't yet see. And so this truth then that he's emphasizing is the fact that Here's what you need to understand. Everything that you see, the seen creation, was created out of nothing. Now, that should just blow your minds. Because one of the truths that philosophers and scientists have tried to answer for millennia is, where did all this come from? Questions about origins. Where did we come from? Why does something exist rather than nothing? And one of the maxims, the beliefs, the held-to understandings of the ancient philosophers was that nothing comes from nothing. And if you're a fan of the sound of music, you now want to say, and nothing ever could. It's a terrible song. But that portion of it is true. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Now that's true when you're speaking about created finite things. But brothers and sisters, when we're talking about God, we're not talking about a created finite being, are we? We're talking about an uncreated, it's a weird word, but uncreated, God's not created, infinite being who's all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal. And so the rules there don't apply to him that nothing comes from nothing. This is the incredible thing that we understand as the philosophers strive throughout the history of the world. And go read them. It's, It's fascinating to see them try to come to grips with this. Some of them are like, well, like Aristotle, matter must be eternal. And so then everything's created out of this eternal matter. No, 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 no. In the beginning, God, nothing else. And then... Out of this nothing, he creates the heavens and the earth. I can't explain away the mystery of that to you. And you can't explain away the mystery of that to me. But you know what? By faith, I understand that. 
and it makes my heart leap for joy. It's incredible. How, how could it be any other way? I can't even think about it any other way. By faith, we understand. Again, not that I can explain all the mystery away, but this is absolutely incredible that God creates everything out of nothing. He calls into existence, as Romans 4.17 says, the things that do not exist. Now again, we could just sit here and meditate on this for a month of Sundays. We could easily turn, I'm not joking, verse 3 into five or six sermons. We're not going to do that. Don't worry. And I'm getting to the end. Here's the question. You definitely should be meditating on these throughout the coming week, though. These are incredible truths. Here's the question I want to answer, though. I don't want us to lose sight of this. What's the pastoral import of this? Why is he highlighting this for these Hebrew Christians who are feeling beat up and tempted to turn away, to no longer walk by faith, but instead by sight? Why does he bring this up? Because here's the comparison. They're looking at their lives, and they're going, what is there in our lives that God can use to fulfill his promises? There seems to be nothing. Look at me. He's going to use me so that I persevere? He's going to use me to declare the gospel to unbelievers? He's going to use me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? He's going to use me to bring glory to his name? He might as well be working with nothing. And we look at our circumstances. The coronavirus has us on lockdown. Our missionaries are all back home. How's the gospel going to go forward in these circumstances? How's the gospel going to go forth to the ends of the earth so that tongues and tribes and peoples that have never heard the gospel in the history of the world will hear it and believe. How is this going to happen? The circumstances seem to be turned against us. So then what do we need to be reminded of? If the God who created everything out of nothing by his word is the same God that promises you what he promises, he can bring glorious fulfillment out of the nothingness of our lives. The circumstances, our own person that seems to be in opposition, contradicting his promises. If he can do that, he can keep his promises to you. He can work all things out for your good and for his glory. He will work out all of history so that his son comes back and establishes his kingdom and brings in the new heavens and the new earth and rids the universe of sin and sickness and death and the devil and sadness. If he created everything out of nothing, he can do this. And so it's really an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he did this, he, he can do this. And so fill your mind with that. Meditate on that. So do, do you see what he's doing here? He's not focusing them on themselves. He understands that that's part of the problem. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your circumstances. And look at the God who has always been faithful. He will be faithful to you. He will sustain your faith. He will cause you to persevere into the end. He will build his kingdom. He will ensure that his church goes to the ends of the earth so that the gospel is proclaimed. He created everything out of nothing. Everything that you see. And so as you look around at creation, as you look at your family, your kids, as you look at nature, as you look at buildings, what man is able to build, you should look at all of this and say, this all exists because God created it out of nothing. He is that powerful. He is that good. He is that wise. And he has given me the gift of faith. Even better than that, the object of my faith is the object of all the saints throughout history, his son. And he has given him to me. He is mine and I am his. He has fulfilled all of his promises in the old covenant in his son. And so he will be faithful. 
to fulfill all of his promises. Brothers and sisters, if he has promised it, it's as good as done. That's why the Puritan Thomas Manton said in his commentary on this verse that any promise of God rightly understood, any promise that God has given us that we rightly understand by faith is a creating word. You can't see it necessarily, but he will create the thing that he has promised against all means if he has to, because he already know he can do that because he created everything out of nothing. So it's as good as done, all of his promises towards us. So let us wait patiently. Let us endure in the faith, walking by faith and not by sight. And as we do so, I believe that the song welling up in our hearts and hopefully out of our lips, though not this morning, is that old hymn, This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let me pray.